This is Derailed Trains of Thought. Welcome to episode two of Derailed Trains of Thought. We survived our first one. Hope you enjoyed it, the oh, three of you who listened to it. <laughs> um, my name is Nick, also known as He Who Wears Flannel. And this is Timothy Deal, a.k.a. Samwise Super Smurf. How did you come up with that name? Uh, that is thanks to Tom Walcott, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, freshman year, he was my RA, and he got people to, he was asking people, if you could be a cartoon character, what would you be? And after much deliberation, that was what I finally came up with. Okay, that makes sense. I wanted to be a superhero. I, I knew the parts, but I didn't know why they came together. Yeah, and then it, I kind of had fun with it. You know how it works, you come up with an idea and see where what you can do with it. And I had a lot of various ideas about an origin story and <laughs> what, what he did around campus. And, Nice. Yeah. You ever have any, like, anyone draw a profile of... Actually, yes. A guy called Chuck in church history class actually drew a picture of Samwise Super Smurf once. It was quite nice. I had it on my dorm room wall for a while. Nice. We really need to put that on the site sometime. Yeah, we should. I'll have to, <laughs> I'll have to dig it out. It's, it's in a file somewhere now. Well, our first section, every time, is going to be story school, where we talk about some sort of aspect of storytelling, whether it's film or writing or anything in between, and just give our thoughts on it, hash it out. So, Tim, our topic today is what? We're going to talk about commercial versus artistic vision. This is something I think just about any kind of creative person has to come to terms with. Now, granted, when I say commercial versus artistic vision. I think we need some full disclosure here because some people hear that and think that we're very elitist or that we're lauding all these independent films. And well, I think I think I speak for both of us in that we appreciate independent films. The, the honesty is that we do like a lot of mainstream stuff. That's very true. No, because I, my first question for you was going to say, define for me commercial as opposed to artistic, at least in your head. Well, in my head, I guess, when people complain about a movie being too commercial or too road, it's, it's this attitude that they basically just made it this way because they knew it would get a lot of money. They weren't going for the smart way to do it, the more artistic or honest way. They were just going for the way that would get the mass attention, whether it's deserving of it or not, like... Okay, so for you, commercial means that they purposely did it to make the money and not the intelligent way. Can there be a commercial that's also intelligent? Actually, yes. And I should clarify that. That that definition of commercial is, again, what's often perceived. It may not necessarily be true. Because particularly from a filmmaking perspective, you do have to take the commercial aspect into account. Because filmmaking is a business and you can't pretend that it isn't because there's financing that has, has to be involved. Um, people aren't going to finance your movie unless you can convince them that people are going to want to go see it. Because you can write a book and no one has to read it. I mean, you can spend, you know, 10 years writing your great American novel about, you know, the guy who owns a donut shop. Exactly. I've been thinking about that a lot more, particularly since I'm in this history of American cinema class this semester. And right now it's covering the studio system. So 1920s, 1930s Hollywood is where I've been spending a lot of time. And directors and actors did not have nearly as much freedom or control as they would today. This is way before the auteur theory that the French developed that really elevated the director to a really important status. 
as we see it today. Um, the producers of the studio were really much more involved in the in the creative process. And for a while, they're the central producing system. They were basically handling both some of the business aspect of it and putting in creative input and saying, this is how we want this movie to go and stuff like that, which reading about it now, it sounds tyrannical almost like they're not letting the artists do what they want to do. But oftentimes when reading this, you do see directors who they've got this great artistic vision, but their production starts taking too long. They go way over budget and it, Sometimes it can cost the studio a lot of money without really getting anywhere. So the producers are often a, a controlling agent. It's it's for their own good in a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense to me because when I when we first picked this topic, I was thinking through it, and I was thinking that I don't see necessarily anything wrong with the commercial. Here's how I was thinking about it: mm-hmm. that you know, say someone was going to pay me for writing an action movie. Well, then I would use action conventions, and I could still make a good movie using the boundaries. It's like if you write a sonnet, you only get 14 lines, but that doesn't mean it's lame because you only have 14 lines. That's what a sonnet is. Right. If you're trying to make a, you know, a blockbuster and you have certain parameters, in some ways, for me at least, parameters makes me, make me more creative. Because you, you have this box and you have to do something inside the box. It's true. And I think we've certainly seen in recent years that it, it is really all about how you work within those parameters. We've seen some very intelligent blockbusters, and we've seen a lot of dumb ones. Um, <coughs> I just alienated like half our, all of our uh, teenage audience, but that's okay. Uh, that's like two people. <laughs> but, I mean, think about Iron Man. Think about the Batman movies. Oh, yeah, the Batman movies are a great example of that. Yeah. Or, I mean, it's, it's a superhero. I mean, how formulaic... Can you get? I mean, it would seem, but you use that format to great use. And not a number. Well, about half of the superhero movies seem to be trying to move in that direction, and the other half, kind of just rehash. Not rehash, but they're just fun popcorn movies. You know, they're not. You didn't put a lot into it. Didn't go in expecting a lot. Mm-hmm. Just want to see, you know, your favorite character beat some stuff up. I mean, of course, that is part of the problem. I mean, once you have a very successful movie like The Dark Knight, then they're all like, oh, let's try to make a really super edgy, dark superhero <laughs> movie. And they're always comparing everything to The Dark Knight for like three years afterwards. Because if you want to make a new Dark Knight, you do something completely different than The Dark Knight. Exactly. exactly. My, my big thing is, you know, we put in the topic that's commercial versus artistic. And I'm not sure optimally it would be both. Well... If you want to be commercial, optimally it'd be both. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't see anything wrong with if you have an idea that is not going to be commercial. It just won't be, but you still think it's worth telling. Oh, certainly. You know, but I think for me, you can be commercial as long as you're true to what the characters need to do, the sort of story you're trying to tell. You're not cutting corners or uh, adding things in just for taking off some demographic. Yes. Uh, taking off by like you, you check them off, not as in like you're making them mad. Right. But you can make them mad, too, I guess, if that's your point. People hate the movie that tries to include all the all the favorite cliches, The you know, whether it be goofy sidekicks or something. You can do goofy sidekicks, and it could be cool, but people always can tell the difference between a genuine, you know, interesting characters and the, fa- the phonies. Yeah, the ones you put in there just because you're supposed to put in one. Yes. I was actually thinking this in context of... Uh... TV, you know, now there's more and more on the internet, you hear that they're going to try to do product placement maybe more inside the show as opposed to in commercials. You know, they're trying to figure out how to do advertising, mm-hmm. how that less, more people watch it online. And you know, a couple like shows I've seen on Sci-Fi Channel do very blatant product placement inside the show, but it kind of works because, like, the show Eureka does it. Uh-huh. But Eureka's a goofy show anyway, so they kind of do it tongue-in-cheek. But I was thinking... If I was a writer and they said, oh, look, we're sponsored by Coke, get in there, I could see that being a challenge to do it intelligently. Hmm. I don't think, even on that end, that it has to be cheesy or forced or, you know, stick out like a sore thumb. Oh, yeah. I mean, you could ar- I could argue that probably on both sides, but I could see making an argument for even product placement being artistic. If you could pull that off, that would be very impressive. 
I'm trying to think of an example where I've seen that. I'm not sure. I know uh, on the office they're always going to Chili's for meetings and stuff. Oh, really? I think it's I think it's Chili's, at least in the first couple seasons. And uh -huh. I'm assuming they paid for advertising. Yeah, it feels natural because some place people go when they go out to eat. Well, I guess so. one of the first most famous examples of product placement was in E.T. Well, with the Reese's Pieces. Oh, yeah, I forgot all that. Yeah, I heard that basically kind of saved the Reese's Pieces brand, <laughs> which is interesting because, I mean, I don't, I can't remember the last time I had those. I, I really like them, but you don't see them very well, or very often. No, you don't. I'm, I've never been quite certain of that, or why that is. Any movies that you think completely, that you've seen recently that are just commercial and they just um, sacrifice their artistic vision? Oh, I'm, hmm. it's hard to say because it, I don't have a whole lot of time these days to watch movies that aren't meant to be watched. Or, <laughs> And as you're thinking, here's another question. Because a lot of these commercial movies are done just by the books, just to make money. People still like and go to watch. You know, sometimes, a lot of times, sometimes they're family-oriented. Mm -hmm. um, okay, well, here, mean, go ahead. The, 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 here's, here's one that I've not actually seen, but all the... Critics just revile them, and I can't blame them. The guys who did the Scary Movies uh, franchise, okay. then then kind of, I don't remember their names, I'd have to look it up, but then they would go on to do other parody movies, like... Oh, they did Epic Movie. Yeah, Epic Movie, Vampire Sucks, stuff like that. Critics hate these movies because apparently they just, it's one dumb pop culture reference joke after another. But they all do decently, which is why they keep making them. Yeah, I mean, and I guess that's the question then. I mean, as a, as a writer, I wouldn't want to write something just because it's supposed to be cool. Honestly, I have no clue what my audience thinks. I can't write for an audience <laughs> because I can only write what I think is a good story. Yeah. And hopefully someone likes it. But I guess if you're the sort of person can do, you know, make a scary movie 25 and make money off of it. Mm -hmm. I guess there's no one to tell you that that's horribly wrong if people still pay money and finding entertainment out of it. Well, I don't know. If you've been given the gift of writing, of creativity, you need to strive for artistic excellence. And I believe that the films that the films that are successful that are still intelligent and are still artistically strong show that there's no excuse for striving for less than excellence, less than originality and less than what your own, you know, like you said, your own artistic passions drive you to do. I completely agree with you. I don't know if everyone would be. I'm sure there's people who love those movies who say, no, they should keep coming out with them. But <laughs> yeah, from an artistic point of view, I think that's very true, that we should strive not to be mediocre. You know, okay, you can get by with a you know half-hearted script, and people will watch it and you know pay for it because it's the only thing is say an action movie that week. Mm -hmm. But you know, at least personally, you know, if we can tell all writers what they should do, not the best use of your gift, or just even affecting culture, because you you know movies affect how people think about the world, and if movies are half-hearted and lame. My, one of my biggest peeves is when they try to pull out some lame moral from a movie that has no depth in it to yeah. say that moral. What's that? The, the most classic and cliched of those morals is that whole believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. And trust you know. in your own heart. Man. <laughs> and I mean, the parent saying, oh, I didn't understand. That's really what you wanted to do. You were much smarter and I'm the dumb parent. Oh, I, I really hate that trope. <laughs> I'm so sick of that trope by now. I, I even It even bugs me in old movies that I watch for class. And I'd be like, do people really think this way? Do they really, you know, not... N like, okay, I started watching this movie for history class recently called I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. Really good movie ball by all accounts. And I saw parts of it that were very good. But this guy, he just gets, he just gets back from... Uh, World War One, and he's comes back home and he wants to go into construction engineering. But as soon as he gets home, his family is like, "Oh, Mister So and So, he's he kept the spot open for you at the factory, just like we knew you would be appreciative." And he doesn't want to work in a factory. He he, he doesn't like it. But each time he says this, his father is like, "What? How ungrateful!" And blah 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 blah. blah. And I can't believe you would just turn down this blah 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 blah. blah. <laughs> and I'm like. 
it doesn't ring true for me. And maybe, I mean, this it's an older one. It's from 1930s. Maybe people really did think that way. But, you know, you still see those characters written in movies today. And it could just be because I was gifted with wonderful parents that wanted me to do what, you know, pursue what I was interested in. And so maybe that's why it doesn't ring true for me. I don't know. And there's, and you're right, though, that's one of the worst of the tropes, but there are, there's just a number of them that come up. And my pet peeve especially is in a comedy, in, in, there's not a lot of great comedies nowadays, but in a comedy, they'll be doing all these crazy set pieces, and then at the end, they'll, they have to stop enough to make a meaningful, like, oh, we're, you know, we're, and you're like, you have no depth to any of the characters, you don't care, it's a comedy, you know, yeah. let's laugh at it or something. Uh-huh. Or generally the... If it's like a dumb male humor comedy, which <laughs> I generally can't stand, but if it's you know one of those, the guy can act like a complete idiot. He can be a complete sexist and jerk through the whole movie. But then, as long as he you know he learns something, he learns to appreciate people just a little bit. Then you know the finale can show show him being a warm hearted but still an idiot. <laughs> exactly. Oh boy, all these all these evils come from. From purely not having any sense, and I wonder, is it lack of artistic vision? I mean, is it you know that they they just go by the numbers because that's how that sort of movie always goes, or do the writers really believe that's a real like meaningful lesson? Well, as far as like the believe in yourself stuff goes, I think some of them probably do believe it because I mean, self confidence is a good thing. Yeah, that's kids, true. We want kids to have good self esteem. But honestly, I think a lot of writers in the business don't really have anything else to believe in. Yeah, I didn't want to say that per se, because I don't know that for certain. But you get that sense sometimes that you're like, believe in yourself. Okay, I'm going to believe I'm going to be president of the United States. But unless I, you know... Unless you work toward it, it's not going to just happen. Yeah, it do, it's not like, oh, I really want to be a motocross star. And then, you know, like some Disney uh, made for... TV movie, you know, where they've done every sport known to man, the person, you know, the guy or girl who wants to be the champion of that sport, and then they are. Yeah. Or if you want to get really cynical, <laughs> the girl who wants to be a princess and have a really exciting life, and then yeah. it happens to her. I mean, granted, some of those movies are good, too. Oh, and some definitely. of the sports movies are good. But you just get tired of always... I mean, I guess it's another one of those things. Say, say Disney says, hey, we need to make a good sports movie. And you can make good ones. You know, remember the Titan everyone, most people really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can make just a lame one, which I can't pull one off the top of my head, but... Air Bud. Air Bud, or <laughs> Air Bud 3. Isn't there a yeah. third one? Yeah, I think there is, actually. What's the gymnastics one? Stick it, or... Oh, there's the, like three of those. The first the, one was kind cheer, of fun, or the cheerleading one. Bring it on. Bring it on. <laughs> My sister used to watch that first one all the time. <laughs> Are the sequels any different? I honestly have no idea. I have not seen the sequels. Yeah. Well, again, we're not the target audience. <laughs> That's true. We're not really. I'm not sure where anyone's target target audience. I guess superhero movies might be us. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose. What's targeting us? Yeah. Well, that and things like the events. That's, yes, which maybe we'll have to talk about later. Yeah, at our perhaps. other section. Going back really quick to the princess thing. Animaniacs actually spoofed this one time. They did their own spoof of Pocahontas. Nice. There's this wonderful, wonderful song about this story seeming very familiar, and then they go back and do um, reference a whole bunch of the princess movies that they had been doing recently at that point. <laughs> I'll, and I'll be honest, I, I really like Beauty and the Beast. It's yes. one of my, Beauty and the Beast is one of my favorite Disney movies. That that's the tr- you know traditional thing done very very well. Yes, and and Aladdin, I mean, which is not as much of a princess movie, but Jasmine is has a lot of the same kind of desires. But by the time they got the Pocahontas, it did really feel old by that point. I guess I got to throw well, I got two things that remind me. Of. First of all, I remember reading the newspaper. I think USA Today back when Brother Bear came out, which I've never seen. And they were saying, some Disney high up was saying that what Disney needed to regain its you know, popularity was talking animals. <laughs> and I was thinking, it's not the animals, it's the story. Yeah. And then, and then you know, this is right around the time when Pixar is starting to be big. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you couldn't see two different, more different ways of approaching story. You know, okay, we're going to retell a fairy tale with talking animals, or we're going to tell an actual interesting story. 
Yeah. Which is why I love that Pixar is tutoring Disney now. Exactly. I'm so glad that they're now in charge of the whole animation department, aren't they? Pretty much. Well, John John Lasseter is. Yeah. I always love the fact that even though Disney basically bought Pixar and they own it, in a sense, it was more like Pixar gaining control of Disney. Yeah. Well, because you put a, a link on your Facebook, I don't know, probably a month ago now, about how different companies are coming to Pixar now and asking for the story advice. Yeah, yeah. The the guys working on Tron went and they did a screening for them, and then they went and did reshoots with using some of their advice. And there was a reading of the new uh, Muppet movie script with Pixar group people. So, yeah, which I was really happy to hear that. I'm, I've got high hopes for new Muppet movie, partially because... Anyone who knows me, at least knows me really well, can tell you I am hopelessly obsessed with Muppets. We'll have to do a story school of Muppets sometime. We should. I would be quite happy to do that. The other thing I wanted to say real quick is that we've been talking about the dangers of commercial. There are almost as many dangers of artistic, of this sort of very narrow, my way is you have to make something completely and utterly new. That's true. Which sometimes just makes it really weird or you or you break... I've always felt like I'm all for trying new things. If you've ever read my stuff, you know, I, I like to push boundaries or play with things. Usually in the context of old ideas, though. I'm, I have nothing against trying new ways of doing things, new types of stories. But a lot of times it seems like it accompanies a breaking down of traditional morals simultaneously. So you push the story, but you're also pushing the sort of actions that you think are okay to show in a movie. Uh-huh. Or in a book. Or in a book, exactly. You know, I'm... I'm all for traditional. Well, I remember when a loved one, who shall remain nameless at this time, uh, was reading your second Strin and Fred book, actually. (laughs) Okay. A little criticism here from her perspective, but in Remnant of Dreams, which is Nick's second Strin and Fred book, there is a lot of soul searching. A lot. a, A group of people are basically trying... They're going to seek this cure. This village has been infected. And she she was kind of like, it, it feels like it's dragging a lot because it's all this, you know, kind of pondering. They're, they're traveling, but not a lot of it's happening. They're just kind of worried about this and that. And I was like, I see what you're saying, but I also understand what Nick is doing here. And that's because I know a bit about how your mind works. <laughs> And how you like to kind of set things up. And basically, book two of the Strin and Fred series is very much like season two of Babylon 5. Where you're kind of, you're setting things in place emotionally um, for the characters for what will happen next. At least that is my interpretation. I could be wrong. I I think that's a very good interpretation. Book two is also highly influenced by Dostoevsky. Yes. (laughs) And it it is very much the emotional counterpart. I mean, it is a very internal, emotional... That was my hardest one to write, because, or one of the hardest books I've written, because I was trying to... There's not much physically that happens, but there's a lot of emotional things that have to be moved around. Which is which is difficult. I won't say I, I did it perfect. I'm sure you know if I looked at it now, I'd, I would do it different. But I'm very fond of that book. I also like monologues, and there's many, many monologues in that book. So. Definitely, that'd be a very hard book to film, honestly, because it'd be so many monologues. <laughs> book three will be much. Book three, I think, I always feel like book one's very action oriented, and book two's very internal. Book three feels to me, at least, the, about the half I've written. That is about a perfect combination of the two. And there's a lot of stuff happening. I think the first third I read has a lot of pieces, dominoes hitting one after another, which if I could do that the whole book, I'll be very, very happy. And then I just got to finish up with the last book. You said you're about a third of the way through the first book, or I'm sorry, third book? There's a third of it that's completely written, edited, and then probably enough to make a total of a half of book done, nice. if that makes any sense. It's in, two, it's in three-thirds. One third's completely done, and I've got like beginnings of the other two thirds. Okay. Well, any other final comments on uh, commercial versus artistic vision, and how are you going to use it in your film career? Well, I mean, we've really just kind of scratched the surface. This is kind of one of those issues, again, I think that artists kind of have to wrestle with their whole lives. When I was thinking about this topic, I can think of a couple of, like I said, 
Nick and I, we do like a lot of mainstream stuff. I mean, we spent the last podcast talking a lot about Star Wars and Lost. Yeah. But in a sense, Lost is very... It was divisive because the creators stuck to a specific artistic vision. Now, Tim, you know that that artistic vision was just because they were dumb and didn't know how to do it any better. Yeah, obviously they didn't. They have no idea what they were doing. My thing is, it doesn't end like people like it to, and therefore they're playing it just for commercialism. But if you did it like everyone liked it to be, then it's artistic. <laughs> yeah, kind of. that's kind of a catch-22, isn't it? I mean, granted, I understand anyone who doesn't like the end of Lost, but that argument doesn't make sense. And the other thing is that People act like, okay, they were just making up as they went along. Well, to a certain degree, yes, they did. But that's what artists do. You can have things outlined, but any creator will come across things in their work that they didn't expect. Can I give you my story of of a character that did something I didn't expect real quick? Oh, go for it. Okay, so I'm writing the third book of Strange Fred. There's supposed to be the confrontation between this lady named Jail, who's kind of violent, and the Empress. And it's supposed to just be this verbal confrontation and Jail's supposed to walk off. Well, Jail kind of goes a little... She's really mad about this situation and she ends up breaking the Empress's arm. Oh. Um, I, didn't, I didn't mean to do that. I'm writing and thinking, I cannot do this. I'm thinking, it's artistic vision. I'm like, but it's not right for Jail's character not to go all the way through with this action. Uh-huh. TV does that a lot more now. You know, TV used to pull their punches. There's some shows now that don't pull punches at all. If the mm. character would do it, they'll do it. Yeah. Another example I was going to give J.R.R. Tolkien didn't anticipate writing Treebeard at all. I think Treebeard was a complete surprise to him, even though he had been playing around and working in his mythology for Middle-earth for a very, very long time. He still encountered things that surprised him. Yeah, I, I think any, well, I won't say any artist, but most artists have things that come up because it's true to the characters, they're true to the plot, things that they didn't mean to happen. I think sometimes stories, movies, or books, or whatever, feel un, untrue if the character does something because it's what should be done in that, you know, in the order of how things are done, but it wasn't set up right. And then plus, in TV, it's a very unpredictable medium. Although Babylon 5 ended strongly, I mean, you've got some things that were kind of messed up because of network scheduling problems. and You know, people might leave or not leave. I know Babylon 5 had that problem, Lost, you know, various people they would like to keep around, like Echo, don't want to film anymore. At least Lost had like 400 people working on it. They're jumping through 10 time zones in an episode and filming it in basically eight days. And, and filming in some very challenging conditions, I would imagine. I... Imagine it's not easy to film an entire series in the jungle. You can't, you know, book at least when I write something horrible and go back and fix it. A TV, I think, is a really exciting, could be, you know, as a writer, could be really exciting because it really is serialized. I mean, when you get an episode done, you can't take it back. I remember reading J. Michael Straczynski in a preface to one of the Babylon 5 novels. I'm not sure why I keep going back to Babylon 5 today, but (laughs) this friend of his had this uh, experiment where he would write a story live in this cafe or coffee shop. Harlan Ellison. Okay, you you know the story. Where he would would basically write out a page and then he would stick it to the window or to a wall. And he was stuck with it. Whatever had happened was stuck and he would continue writing. And that's a really interesting experiment and kind of visualization of how that process works. I, I, I think that's exciting. Well, I did that with Snort, largely, a girl called Snort. That's true. Yeah, you know, I wrote it and it was done. You know, I might go through and tweak stuff, but plot-wise, it probably won't change that much. Because I, I think it's exciting living on the edge of your sheet, seat as a writer and just going with it. And having the, having the audience influence you, I think... It's something that happens both on TV and, or can and on, you know, web novels and other more interactive media. So in the end, I think the commercial versus artistic issue is, it's a balancing act. Unless you just don't want to make any money. <laughs> True. <laughs> that's, that sounds kind of familiar there, Nick. <laughs> oh, it's just because I don't promote. I don't, I wouldn't mind necessarily making money. <laughs> it takes too much effort. But yeah, it's a balance of... How convinced are you that you have a story that needs to be told a certain way? And how much of it is you have to make money? Yeah. 
both are serious considerations that you have to make. Yeah, I think both come out with valid and good, can come out with valid and good movies. Mm -hmm. I guess we'll lead into that into something pretty cheery, a nice interlude here. Tim, you want to introduce our first soundtrack of the episode? Sure. All right, time for soundtrack. Nick had a nice idea of music this time around, kind of keeping in with our theme. We plan to pick a lot of soundtrack choices from the website OC Remix, which is a great video game remixing site. There's like 2,000 songs or something, so... Incredible resource. We're picking a couple songs that are from very mainstream, popular games that people have put their own artistic spin on it. This track is an example of that. This is from the game Super Mario Brothers 2. Doki Doki Panic. The original Japanese version. And the song is called Gypsy Jazz. And the artist is named Adrian Halabadi. Enjoy. Welcome back. Hopefully you enjoyed that uh, quite lively rendition of Super Mario 2, the main theme. I, I love that music all around. That's actually one that I was not familiar with, and I've listened to a lot of Mario remixes, but it's a nice find. And you have a nice collection of Mario remixes. Yes, but that was one that I collected a while back, and I'm going through the OC remix slowly. <laughs> I'm trying to go through all the music in there, and i been at it for about a year, and I'm a little over halfway through now. There's some really good stuff in there. Yeah, they really do. So, next is something we like to call Project Update. This is just us telling what we're doing at film, well, Tim at film school and me as a writer at night when I have a chance between everything else. So, Tim, you want, you want to start off with your film school update? Sure. Sometimes I've got projects for class. I don't have a whole lot coming up yet. The semester started off with a lot of reading. But I am the editor for our school's spring film. Regent University has an endowment that they finance a special film once every fall, spring, and summer. 
semesters. It's financed, so the students get a chance to work on a bigger project, a little bigger production than they would normally have the budget for in class. And it's all a bit more polished and usually gets sent off the film festivals. For the spring film, which was shot uh, the first week of March this year, it's called A Piece of Cake. And I was there for the filming. I was the sound mixer, actually. I worked with a guy who held the boom pole, the boom microphone. But now, this semester, I am working on editing it. When this podcast airs, because we record a week in advance, I should be beginning into the actual scene cutting stage, as in cutting the scenes together. It's taken us a while to get through the formatting process. We shot on digital camera, at least most of it. Certain scenes, when the character has kind of fantasy sequences, we shot on film, actual film, so it would have a more cinematic look, a, a different feel to it than yeah. the other stuff that we shot on digital video. Plus, the sound was recorded onto a separate device called a sound mixer, so not only did we have to convert the footage to a format more suitable for editing, had to sync the audio clips from this other thing to the original video clips. So, finally getting through the bulk of that process, so I'm really anxious to actually start putting the scenes together. Now, how long will this be when it's done? Let me think. The original script, I think, is about 12 pages. And usually a page of scripts translates into about a minute of footage. Mm -hmm. Although when I was talking with the director about it, he said he wouldn't be surprised what with kind of some of the cuts and things he had planned if it wouldn't be closer to 13 or so. Okay, so it'll expand a little bit. It'll expand a bit. Because I think there's certain scenes that on scripts it looks very short. And if you just look at some of the clips... It could be short, but if cut together the right way for dramatic emphasis, those scenes would be a little bit longer okay. than it would appear. So I'm really excited. The footage looks pretty cool. It's a fun story about a guy that is trying to get over some of his phobias and be more open to meeting with strangers. He goes to this coffee shop and basically learns to stand up for himself and meets a girl in the process. Oh, that's always a nice thing. Yeah. It's a fun it's a fun little movie. It's we're aiming to premiere. It's Regent does a student film showcase at the end of the school year. So we've got plenty of time, but there are a lot of a lot of things to do for it and always having to work around student schedules in the post production process. So yeah, that's that's what I'm up to these I, days. Well now when it's finally done, isn't there a place they put all the films on the internet? For people to watch eventually eventually okay it'll be a while because it goes to film festivals and stuff yeah okay. um well i think sometimes they put other stuff on there before but region has a film website called realgood.tv i'm not sure when it was last updated okay so it's it's randomly updated yeah what are you up to um not a lot actually with Quick rundown. It's been kind of crazy around my house. Uh, since we've recorded the last podcast, my sister's been married. I ran a half marathon. Congratulations on both counts. No, thank you. I ran, I ran with your sister, but she she whipped me. Yeah, I heard she was like 13 minutes ahead of you or so. Yeah. Well, she trained much harder than I did, too. I mean, she yeah. to be that much faster than I was. Plus, she's insanely driven. Yes, she, that's true, too. <laughs> she, she she scares me sometimes. <laughs> I'm like four and a half years older than her. <laughs> anyway. Um, various other things, teaching and other things. But I'm within like a page of having all the end of Squire that was handwritten typed. It's almost all typed up. Yay. Which should be good. That's a big deal. And then um, I scrolled off a new flash fiction that at some point I'll edit and post. Really? So just random one. Every once in a while I'll have an idea that's not related to music. And I'll, normally my flash fiction's come from me listening to a specific piece of music and trying to think of a plot. But this one just was kind of out of the blue, this idea I had. I don't think it'll be the best one, but it's one of those things I had to try it. And that's a nice thing for me about flash fictions. They don't work. They're a thousand words. No waste. It's it's experimental. And that's really all, at least writing project-wise, I've been doing lately. There's always other things that are kind of the stir in your back of your mind, but you have to focus on something. Seems like I had an interesting idea the other day that I wanted to start on, but I got finished Squire. Squire's first. There's a story that's lingered in the back of my mind for 
years now that I was thinking about again the other day. Is this the Darien's Tale? Yeah, this is Darien. You've heard me talk about it <laughs> vaguely for a long time. One now. of these I'm days, always... I, th- I think come New Year's Eve, our uh, story school needs to be like some sort of... Uh, Resolution. Resolutions, thank you. I couldn't even think of the word. And then then and then we have like a month to report back to our audience and they can hold us accountable. That would be nice. Next up is our take on tales. This is a section where we just talk about books, movies, TV, plays, whatever we've seen recently and what we thought of it and suggest things that we like. Now, you go first this time. I think I've been going first the last few months. Okay. I read, for the first time in my life, a Stephen King novel. Just finished it. Hmm. Odd that I've never read a Stephen King since he's, like, amazingly popular and <laughs> prolific. Um, but I, which one was it? It's The Gunslinger, which is book one of the Dark Tower series. Ah. I was very tempted to start reading Dark Tower when I heard that they were thinking about doing a TV series about yeah, that. Yeah, they're doing, like, movies and TV series together, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Which is really fascinating, I think. Dark Tower is about the only Stephen King that's ever really... I I think his other stuff's probably really good. I haven't... But it's never really intrigued me, but... Okay, first off, the main... You know, there's a main mystery of this tower, which kind of plugs into one of my things I want to write about, a tower that's the center of things. And it was seven book series and like these long epic series. So, and The Gunsling was relatively short and I had a friend who uh, had it, so he let me borrow it and I read it's like 230 pages. And I kind of have mixed feelings about it. Really? First off, I never read Stephen King, but his writing style, at least in this book, and I don't know if it's his normal writing style because I know this book he wrote quite a while ago and then he revised and some later Dark Tower novels have a slightly different style, so I don't know how indicative this is of the rest of his style, but really strong narrative. I mean, pushes you forward, great word choice, very stark imagery, really enjoyed the writing style and this, and just reading it. It was a fun, it was a fun thing to read. Cool. The beginning half is in this desert, you just feel like the sun's beating down on you, and then they reach grass and it feels like a whole new, like, you're almost relieved to get there. So it hmm. it really gets you in the in the world very well. The problem is sometimes the world's not one I want to be in. Uh, um, it's the the language is very stark, but the world itself is very stark. It's very gritty, very violent. The violence doesn't bother me necessarily, but it also has a very stark sexuality to it, which I'm like, do I, I didn't know if the only purpose was just to make us feel uncomfortable because that's almost what it does constantly hmm. um and i don't know the second half of the book doesn't have near as much of that and i like the second half a little better uh-huh. so it's one of these things where i just don't know the story's interesting enough i want to read more that can be a big problem with a fantasy or science fiction book and i've encountered that where the world they're creating is not one that's really pleasant to spend a lot of time in not that, you know, Middle-earth has got some very dark places and I wouldn't want to spend a lot of time in Mordor either. But if you go through long sections and it just feels oppressive. I remember this Star Wars book I read called Splinter of the Mind's Eye. Oh, yeah, I've read that. It's been a long time. But... It's a terrible book. <laughs> to its defense, I think it was the first Star Wars spin-off It was written novel. before Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, so Luke has romantic feelings toward Leia still, which is awkward. <laughs> And Darth Vader's appearance is just terribly written. But the the other thing is, it's set in this like very swamp-like planet. Not Dagobah, but, you know, similar. But the whole place just sounds miserable. Luke and Leia get stranded there, their ship crashes or something, and they have to make their way across to find civilization. And it turns out that there's an imperial presence there. The setting was so oppressive that it just wasn't any fun to read. I do have to say in defense, though, that of this that he portrays the world as it's like a dying world that they're always saying the world has moved on that basically Mm. civilization is gone and this is just the last dregs of humanity Uh the problem is it feels like this is the last dregs of humanity not so much dark as just stark and kind of brutal Uh, and the main Uh character is kind of an anti-hero at this point i mean he wants he's following this man in black and he wants to Tower. You have no idea why he's following the man in black or why he wants the tower. And I'm assuming they'll explain more later. But he's not necessarily that great. He's a very plodding, step-by-step sort of guy. Not doesn't have much imagination. So he doesn't have much... He has a sort of morality where 
you know, it's not like light versus dark. It's like twilight versus dark. Meaning it's like mm-hmm. he's gray, so he's better than everyone else. But he's yeah. still gray. Now, I have a sense that there'd probably be some redemption arc for him, too. I mean, seven books. And you even get some hints here that he doesn't always like the choices he makes. But he feels like there's no other better choice to make, given the circumstances. So, I'll probably read another one at some point when I have time. But it was it was just kind of a... I like this so much, and the writing style is great, and it's moving forward. I just wish it was slightly different. Oh, I guess to illustrate my point, I had this on page. Stephen King at the beginning says that he read Lord of the Rings, and he loved the idea of the quest that it introduced, but he didn't necessarily like the Nordic background and mythic idea of Tolkien. That that wasn't his style. The main character at one point, he's just thinking, or... It's the narrator, technically. But he goes, There are quests and roads that lead ever onward, and all of them end in the same place, upon the killing ground. So he refers to Lord of the Rings, you know, the roads that lead ever on, and so they end in the killing ground. So that kind of gives you a sense of... (laughs) A much darker darker, take on it. Bloody version. Yeah, gritty. I guess grittier might be a better word. So, I, I mean, I really... Having distanced myself, I finished it like a week ago. I did really enjoy it, but I do have reservations about what I hope for in the next book. Interesting. So that's my take on my tale. Will you uh, watch a movie if it comes out? Uh, depends. Something I'm not sure I want to see. Because the mm. nice thing about the writing style, it is very, the good and bad side, it's very stark, so it's not necessarily, it's not uber detailed. But it implies it so well that it's almost worse than if it was detailed. Yeah. But it's in some ways better because you don't have to imagine it. You just get the oppressive sense of it. Now, in a movie, I don't know what it would look like. That's that's true. And I remember my mom being kind of apprehensive about the Lord of the Rings movies for actually kind of the same reason, particularly regarding the orcs because they just seem so bad. I mean, they're bad in the books, but actually seeing them is – she doesn't like monster stuff. And I always like, thought in Lord of the Rings, the disappointing part of Lord of the Rings is that the, the feeling of the elves is so fabulous in the book that you can't, I don't think, get it across the same way on film. That's the true. atmosphere. I love the Lord of the Rings movies, but yeah, their elves felt sometimes felt too Vulcan-like to well, me. Well, and I don't know how much better you can do it in a movie. I mean, there yeah. are limitations. Words can conjure up things film can't and vice versa. It's true. It's very true. My choice for this episode is kind of unusual in two ways. For one thing, it's a nonfiction book, which I think I'll generally be referring to fiction for this show. Uh, it still relates, obviously, the stories and telling and stuff. But it's it's also unusual that I would be reading a nonfiction book that's not a textbook <laughs> during the school year, and I have a lot of reading this semester, so. It tells you something why I actually set aside some time to read this one. It's called A Year at the Movies, One Man's Film-Going Odyssey, and it's by Kevin Murphy. I've seen that book. I've never read it, but I've heard of it. Kevin Murphy, most famous as the actor and performer for Tom Servo for 9 out of 10 years of Mystery Science Theater 3000, and also works for Rift Tracks. If you don't know what that is, go to rifttracks.com. That's... R-I-F-F-T-R-A-X dot com. But basically, the book is about this guy that decided to go see a movie at a theater, or at least projected in public, every day for a year. That's a lot of movies. Yeah, it is a lot of movies. But it's fascinating, because he didn't just go to his local theaters, although he certainly did that a lot too. I actually found a clip on YouTube of him talking about it, real brief interview clip that I think I'll, I'll play here. I, I went all, all around the planet because I thought that was important. So, so perhaps I saw, I saw a, a movie in an igloo in Quebec. That was fun. I got to sneak into the Cannes Film Festival. That was also fun. I lived for a week on nothing but movie theater food. I don't recommend that at all. <laughs> I went to Australia, which is my favorite movie country in the world, I think. 
great uh, cinema, just a domestic cinema, and great movie theaters. I went to the Cook Islands in Rarotonga in the South Pacific. I went to Mexico and showed movies in a cantina because they had no movie theaters where I was. So I had, and I went to outdoor theaters, I went to drive-in theaters, I went to uh, museums, I went to the big movie palaces, and I went, I found the smallest movie theater in the world, 22 seats in Australia. And I had tried to have every conceivable kind of experience a person can have going to the movies. Each chapter is, is organized around a week, basically, of, of the year. And it, and it lists at the beginning of the chapter which theaters he went to and which movies he <laughs> saw, which is kind of cool. And he did all this in 2001. But one of my favorite chapters is around Thanksgiving time. He actually snuck an entire Thanksgiving dinner into a screening <laughs> of Monsters, Inc., <laughs> Like, um, turkey, yams, stuffing. His wife, like, custom-made this coat for him that he could stick things in his pockets. And he even had this table that, you know, this fold-up table that he was able to pull out and sit in the front row. And just incredible. And But the thing is, he said that his four-year-old nephew, who he had taken to see a movie at the theater for his very first time, upstaged him in the experience. He was just so... So filled with wonder at the whole experience. I just made it into an adventure. That was the whole point, was to, movies were getting boring for me, so I thought I should make them into an adventure, make it more fun to go see it, because I love the cinema. You know, I spent a lot of time in the film school here, and, uh, and I love to go to the movies, and I thought, it's not fun anymore, so I had to make it fun for myself. I imagine it would be very difficult working on Mystery Science Theater 3000 where you would see so many bad oh, movies. So many bad movies. They watched more movies than more bad movies than they showed on their show. I think they said that they didn't even show the worst of them, that they just couldn't make anything funny out of them. Well, and then they had to watch the ones they did like three or four times at least, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. So I would see how... After doing that experience, you could be very cynical and jaded toward movie watching for a while, which is one reason why he did it. And the other thing is, sometimes watching Mystery Science Theater, MST3K, you do kind of wonder how cynical they are about films, because sometimes they really do seem jaded in their jokes. But it's really nice to get his perspective on... He's, he's a very good writer. He goes into nice detail about stuff. He's harsher on movies that he doesn't like that I probably would be. <laughs> and he, we don't share some of the same religious views, probably. And he doesn't censor language when it occurs. Not that he goes out of his way to have bad language, but he doesn't censor it. But it's a very fascinating read. It, it makes you want to experience watching more movies in theaters beyond just your average multiplex experience. And I probably have less of an issue with multiplexes than he does. He thinks they're very generic, you know, the Walmart effect, mm -hmm. very bland. And since he's gone through all the experiences that he has and, you know, really nice theaters, really, really personal theaters where, you know, the the owners are very passionate about what they do more so than, you know, just your generic manager would at the multiplex. Uh, I see why he pushes for, you know, something more special and unique or a movie-going experience. So it was very interesting for me being at film school and, you know, learning all these theories and stuff to get more of the perspective of just your average moviegoer and what the actual movie-going experience is about. So nice. very cool read. It's all, yeah, it sounds like a very interesting book. Well, that's our first nonfiction. Yeah. Possibly our last. <laughs> I'd seen the book but never heard anyone talk about it. I had to get it through Interlibrary Loan, but I might have to get it off, buy it off at Amazon at some point. There's stories in there I would like to read again sometime. Nice. All right, and next, our final section. Crackpot's Corner. Crackpot's Corner is where we introduce ideas that we think are cool but are never probably ever going to happen in real life. They can be anything at all. So, Tim... Shall I start this time? Sure, go for it. All right. I remember being in a, a nice hotel. Thing, you know, one of those big, sprawling hotels that kind of have, you know, a thematic hotel. That's not just, you know, your Holiday Inn, but, you know, it's trying to give a feeling. I think it was a tropical one. Okay. And thinking, what they need is a hotel full of puzzles. Like... Like mist, it's like the video game mist, <laughs> where you go there and you can just stay and look around and there's neat stuff, but that there would be clues and if you figured it out there'd be like secret passages and Ooh. and I hadn't figured out exactly why you would want to do this, unless 
Have you ever been to House on the Rock? The no. Museum? Fabulous, fabulous. Oh place. yes, Look, you've told me about it's this. It's just like it's like a collection of collections. I mean, they just have collections of you know guns and knives and like weird guns uh-huh. um, <laughs> and wooden toy ships and organs and I mean just everything, toy dolls and carousels and. Uh-huh. It just it feels like you're doing one wondrous room after another, like you walked into Wonderland. Nice. At least it was when I was there. They they have a whole room with the mechanical instruments, ones that play themselves. Uh-huh. Now is it have you been ever been to Ripley's Believe It or Not? Yes. It's kinda of, I mean it's kinda of like that. But maybe not as tacky. Yeah, I mean because it's, it's a one guy's well, I think it started out as one guy's collect well, it started out as this just crazy looking house and then it has all these collections that added to it. I mean, it's kind of the same deal. It's, you know, a museum that's partly just to show you, like... Oddities. And... Oddities, yeah. But I could see, possibly, if you would need some sort of reward for solving the puzzle. Miss the video game is all about exploring these cool settings. Yeah. If you could set up in such a way that you you don't like this whole section of the hotel that maybe had the neat... You know, there's something cool about it. You know, maybe it's all these glass sculptures or all these... I don't know, so it just felt like you were exploring, like you had stumbled across... Something mysterious that Something you... mysterious. Yeah, I don't know how... I don't know if it would ever work or who would go, but I think it'd be fun, and you'd yeah. have to make the puzzles changeable, because otherwise they only had one, then you go on the internet and everyone, they don't, everyone have the answer and it would take out all the fun. You'd have to be able to, like... Maybe there's some sort of pattern puzzle, but you could change what the answer was supposed to be every week or so. Almost kind of like, I know they do those mystery dinner kind of things. Kind of like that. Or a mystery more, weekend, either. More even. free form, but yes. Mm. So that was just, I remember thinking that one day and thought that would be a great, I'd go to that hotel. That would be fun, yeah, I would too. <laughs> All right, my idea for this week, this is one that I've actually thought about doing. And I'll run it by you and see what you think. This is something else that came up to me when early on when I got my MacBook Pro when it was new last year. And the professor showed me this cool program called MPEG Stream Clip, which I use all the time now. It's fantastic. It's a free program that will let you convert video. Okay. But you can also use it to download YouTube videos. I've downloaded uh, a few things, particularly vintage Muppet clips. Some stuff like I've showed you, some of Jim Henson's old, early Muppet commercials. Wilson's Yeah, coffee. Wilson's Coffee with <laughs> a utterly demented uh, puppet that demands that you buy Wilkins Coffee. <laughs> you know, people who don't drink Wilkins Coffee just blow up sometimes. Oh, that's a lot of... See what I mean? It's nice to download and have them for future use. But then I got to thinking, what if I could do... A video mix DVD. Kind of like how people would make remix CDs for someone. Or not remix, but CDs, but just, you know, mix CDs. That, you know, have a certain mix of music, songs on them that might go to a theme. And But this would be a DVD of videos that I compiled from YouTube and maybe some other sources. Of just fun little clips. And it'd be something to give people, you know, something cheap for, like... You know, their birthday or special event, you know, something like that. I don't know if people would enjoy something like that. I mean, the other issue is I'm not sure how legal it is. Well, <laughs> that's true. I think, I mean, especially if you've got the right collection of clips, that could be really interesting. Because I used to really enjoy, um, do you remember McGee and Me? Yes. They released this VHS one time where it was called McGee TV, which is basically just all the animated segments strung together as if McGee had his own TV series or okay. TV, TV channel. So I could see doing something like that, where you pop the DVD in, and it's like you're watching, uh, makes it look like you're flipping through channels as, as you go from one random video to another. Well, it'd be a nice way to condense, you know, something you you used to enjoy, or you like, or that you want to share with someone, condense it in a format. That's true. Just get the highlights. Yeah, particularly since I love watching people put stuff from our childhood on YouTube, whether mm-hmm. it's Square One or Chippendale Rescue Rangers, any of those old cartoons. I, I tell you, we had some of the best kids programming in the like late 80s, early 90s. It's like a golden age of yeah. TV animation. They had some great stuff on. It could be a nostalgic sort of thing like that. It could just be an anagram of things that some people may have never seen and be like, what is that? That's really interesting. You could, just make, a, you could make a musical DVD where it's just all these like musical numbers from various shows. Yeah, possibly. You know, like, you know, like you've made an Animaniacs musical. 
DVD. Mm-hmm. Pretty awesome. It's it's something I thought about. I just don't know how much people would get it and be like, "Cool, I could have just looked this up on YouTube." <laughs> it have to. Uh, it depends on the per- if they're real tech savvy, maybe. But you know, I'm not on YouTube all that often myself, and I'm I, I think it was cool. So you gotta get me one now. Yeah, I, I guess I do. I've <laughs> I've probably said too much. <laughs> math man, math man. <laughs> all right, I guess that's. I guess that's all we got. And that that's all we've got. <laughs> We didn't even use our catchphrase this time, Tim. Yeah, I think we might have overdone it last time. That's true. So that was uh, that's our episode. That's our um, yep. That's all we've got. You can contact us at derailedtrains at gmail Feel free to contact us with anything, and please visit our website at derailedtrainsofthought.blogspot.com. Love to start We're- some discussions in there. If you know, if there's something we said in our podcast that really interested you, or you totally disagree with. Let us know. Or you want to give us a topic for next time, because we're very yeah. open to uh, suggestions. We're Definitely. also on iTunes now. Yay! So please subscribe to the podcast. They sh- should come out every two weeks. I don't know what happened in the holidays, but generally every two weeks. <laughs> and then finally, I guess we'll bow out with uh, my choice for soundtrack. I decided to also pick a very popular game, in this case, Pac-Man. Everyone's played Pac-Man. Everyone, well, hopefully everyone loves Pac-Man. I should if think not, so. you need to stop listening to this podcast. <laughs> go play Pac-Man. Uh, go play Pac-Man. <laughs> or at least Mrs. Pac-Man. Um, <laughs> but this this is done in very uh, modern classical music style. It's called Glass Cage, remixed by Israel Fell, who does some really interesting remixes. Now, of course, you may be wondering to yourself, Pac-Man had music? Well, ah, yes, and then you'll, you'll play us the clip. Right? Yes, Correct. Pac-Man actually does have music. Here in, is the entire score of Pac-Man. And that was the entire score of Pac-Man. And so we took the about five sec, five, ten seconds, mm-hmm. and this remixer changed it into about a six-minute, five-minute epic. Quite impressive. So enjoy, uh, mellow out to it if you can. This has been Nick Hayden. This has been Tim Deal. And we'll see you next time.
Adios. Farewell. Ciao. Auf Wiedersehen. Bye. See you next episode. Space Cowboy.